Well, on this Easter morning, there's many ways to go as we come to the text for Easter. We can deal with it from a historical point of view, look at one of the gospel narratives of the resurrection. We could take it a theological direction, maybe go consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, the implications of the resurrection, or even about the spiritual nature of the resurrection. I think particularly Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, that that uh, if we have died with him, we will also be raised with him, and that our regeneration is a is a spiritual rebirth. It's the it's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ manifesting itself out to us in the Holy Spirit and bringing us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Today, however, we're considering the text which Mark uh, just read for us, the text in John chapter eleven. Now, of course, you know this story. This is a very familiar story to us, and it's important for us to remember the context of this story, that we are prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We all know, in fact, that Lazarus is a man who is blessed on the one hand, uh, but on the other hand, not so much. Uh, He's enjoying uh, the presence of Almighty God, and and if you will, he's snatched back uh, uh, into this mortal coil. Uh, this side of death, uh, only we know to die again. Uh, so what Lazarus goes through here is certainly a picture of the resurrection, uh, but it is not the final resurrection itself. Nonetheless, nonetheless, Jesus prior, just prior, in fact, it's in the next chapter that he's going to, in John chapter 12, he's going to set his face now to Jerusalem. And he's going to say, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And and then in chapter 13, we begin the farewell discourse, those beautiful chapters in John's gospel in which Jesus is in Holy Week and, and, and spending time with uh, his disciples prior to the cross. So we have this moment, but Jesus clearly uh, uh, participates in this event in such a way as to draw the attention of his disciples, to draw the attention of Lazarus's family and to draw the attention even of us, the reader to the very work that he was going to Jerusalem to do. Well, let's go ahead and think about this story together, the story of Lazarus uh, and Jesus' great love for him. Again, we don't know a ton about Lazarus, but we know that he loved, Jesus loved him and Jesus loved Mary and Martha. And so Mary and Martha come to Jesus and they let him know while he's a couple days out uh, uh, away, uh, journey away, that indeed Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick. They find Jesus and they expect Jesus will want to do something about this if he gets the news. And so I want us to think and look at what Jesus does here and for us to begin to think through how do we take the truth of the resurrection and how do we apply it even within our own life. So I want to make a couple points here about Jesus. First, Jesus' love for Lazarus. It's interesting that Mary and Martha track Jesus down and they come and they let him know, hey, Jesus, the one you love is sick, come. In fact, they're going to tell him later, had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. So they expect as they go to Jesus, that Jesus is going not only to be able to do something about this, clearly they believe that, but that Jesus is going to want to come and deal with this. Now, what we know is that 
this was putting Jesus in harm's way. In fact, the disciples uh, find it a little hard to believe that Jesus is going to turn around and go back there uh, because they're trying to kill you there. In fact, even when it's when Jesus does make the decision to go, they say, well, let's go die with him. Like this is this is not going to end well. So let's go and we'll we'll bear the burden with him. And even if it means we've got to die with him, this might be the time of great showdown. But Jesus does love Lazarus. And he sets his mind to go back. But as we're going to see, he doesn't go back immediately. So Jesus loves Lazarus. I want to just before we even get into the very nature of what Jesus does, we know he's going to go back and we know what he's going to do. I just want us to reflect on that first point, that very reality that Jesus loves the man Lazarus in some sense. For God so loved the whole world, he gave his only begotten son. But Jesus had a particular peculiar love for Lazarus and for his family. And I find my heart is comforted and encouraged by this that Jesus loves his people, right? He's actually moved when he hears this news of Lazarus. And brothers and sisters, he loves you. I'm reminded that in this same gospel, in John 17, as Jesus is going to the cross, he goes with your name, if you will, your face in his mind. When Jesus goes to the cross, he prays, go read John 17. We don't have time to read it today. But as he goes to the cross in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples, prays for himself first, then he prays for his disciples, and then he goes on to pray for all those who will come to know and believe in him through the teaching of these disciples. We just read, well, we didn't read, but if you go back and read, the, the immediate context of this passage in John chapter 11 is John chapter 10. And in John 10, it's that whole wonderful and beautiful discourse about the good shepherd. And what, what is true of the good shepherd? The good shepherd knows his sheep and he loves them. And he lays down his life for the sheep. And not one of his sheep can be snatched out of his hand. The whole context of John 11 is a passage, a wonderful exhortation on the love that Christ as the good shepherd has for his people. And we see it manifested in this particular case of Lazarus. Jesus loved Lazarus. And when his sisters come and let him know, Jesus is going to be moved to action. So first, just a meditation on the fact of Jesus' love for Lazarus and his love for you and me as well. What we celebrate today in the resurrection is the fruit of the love of our good shepherd, of our savior for us, those whom he loves by name. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So first, the love of Christ for Lazarus. But then the second point worth considering in this story is something that is, it, it's not harmonious to us. It, it's actually discordant because when Jesus gets this news that the one whom he loves is sick, he doesn't go. I, I think Mary and Martha fully anticipate that they're going to come and they're going to tell him that Lazarus is sick and Jesus is going to go with them and do something about it. But that's not what happens in the story. 
In fact, as we know, Jesus delays. Jesus does not go. And the result is in the time that transpires between the news, his delaying, then the journey to get out there, Lazarus is dead. And by time Jesus gets out there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. This is very peculiar. <laughs> the one who you love is, is sick. And Jesus then says, okay, we're going to hang here a little while. Knowing full well what's happening back in Judea with Lazarus. What is this about? Why does Jesus delay? In some sense, this is the great head scratcher that I think in, into this story, we can find so many of our prayer concerns and our head scratching moments when it comes to our prayer life and to our theology, even of God and suffering. Like, why? And delay, what's even delay? We, we know that geographical distance is not a problem for our Savior. For we know that the Roman centurion came to Jesus one time and said, look, uh, my, my servant is, is sick. And, and, and you don't even have to come with me. If, if you just say the words, then I know that he'll be better. And Jesus says, wow, this is tremendous faith and heals the Roman centurion servant without even going there. So clearly it's not a matter of Jesus just needing to get there, but couldn't get there in time. But Jesus, in this case, intentionally delays. He, he speaks around the situation to his disciples saying that he's, he's sick, but this is not unto death. And yet Lazarus is going to die. He then goes on to say that Lazarus is sleeping. I'm going to go wake him up. And, and they think, well, whoa, if he's just sleeping, is it really that big a deal? But we know the story that's really happening here. But Jesus' delay is one of real consternation. I think for us, what's the issue? When Jesus finally arrives, both Mary and Martha will come to him. And both of them will say very, we don't get the tone. So I want to be careful before I just start supplying tone. But at the same time, I don't know about you. I can certainly feel the words that both of them bring when they say to Jesus, had you been here, this would not have happened. We ran to you believing that there was something you could do. And you delayed. You didn't show. And now Lazarus is dead. It, it might just be a statement of fact, like, you know, Jesus, we're, we're bummed you weren't here. Had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. But I, I feel the angst of it. Maybe even some frustration in this. Had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. I wonder if you've ever felt that way in your own prayer life. I mean, one of the things we know when we pray is that we're praying. We've already acknowledged it this morning in the service. When we pray, we're praying to the God of heaven and earth. We're praying to the one who holds all things in the power of his hands. If he shows up, everything's going to be fine. And if it doesn't happen, then we know, Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. You have the power to fix this. You have the power to overcome death. That's why we ran all the way out there to see you. I think we can feel the pain of Mary and Martha. And perhaps it even comes up in our own prayer life. Why does Jesus delay? 
Why doesn't he just solve the problem? A text, I actually was thinking of this in our, for our Old Testament text uh, this morning. And didn't I chose to go with Jonah and, and this great prophet who, who is taken down to the depths of the sea and then and spit out. But I thought about using Exodus chapter three. This is when Moses is being called by God to go back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, if you will, a, a death and resurrection of its own, right? Israel going down into Egypt and, and then being brought out, spit out, if you will, by uh, the great beast of Pharaoh. But one of the interesting things in that text, if you go back and read Exodus chapter three, is that God is giving Moses uh, uh, the, the signs and he's telling him, you're going to go and here's what's going to happen and you need to be my mouthpiece. And Moses is saying, I, I, I'm not really great with words and so forth. And in Exodus chapter three, God says, Moses, you're going to go and you're going to be my mouthpiece and you're going to speak, but Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. Pharaoh's going to resist you. So here's what I'm going to do in light of that. And that passage has always struck me. Like, God, you are the sovereign God. What do you mean Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's not going to listen? Like, if you have the power to send Moses to go speak the words of God to Pharaoh, if you, have, if you send Moses, you have the power to keep Pharaoh from resisting you. Why would you allow Pharaoh to resist you? Again, this is one of the, the head scratchers. God in his sovereign providence allows Pharaoh to step up and to resist him. Why? Why does God allow death to take Lazarus? Why does he delay? He's sovereign over the whole thing. In fact, I don't know if you caught it, but in the, in the, in the verses where Jesus, I believe it's verse 33, um, when Jesus gets to the grave and he weeps, people turn and they say, but this is the man that healed the blind. Like, this is a guy that could have done something about this. He's weeping. Why is he weeping? Could, couldn't he have? Certainly he could have done something about this. this. This question that Mary and Martha asked or the statement they make, Lord, had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. I think is a deep question that we all must wrestle with. And we must do it in light of the resurrection. Jesus is going to put a, a very powerful question to them. The familiar question that we know comes out of this text in light, I think, of their question to him. Or their statement, had you been here, Lord, this would not have happened. But brothers and sisters, we have to reckon. We have to reckon first with the God, the king, the savior, the shepherd who loves you by name. We begin the story there. But number two, we have to reckon with the savior who waits. The savior who delays. The savior who does not spare his own sheep from going through the trials and the storm. We know Jesus, in fact, sometimes leads his disciples right into a storm. You know the story of Jesus in the boat and the storm in the sea. Jesus led them out there and then went to sleep, led his disciples to the place where eventually they would have to rouse him in complete panic and Jesus would rise up and deliver them. But we have to reckon with this kind of king. Are you okay following this kind of shepherd? A shepherd who loves you by name 
but a shepherd who at times will wait and delay, even if it means we find ourselves in difficult and oftentimes painful circumstances. So first, the love of Jesus for Lazarus. Second, the delay of Christ. Thirdly, the anguish of Christ. This is interesting because Jesus now decides, all right, guys, let's go. Right. They head out there and make their way to Mary and Martha. And when they get there, obviously, we know Lazarus has been dead and he's been dead for a couple of days. And two times in the text, verses 33 to 35, Jesus is filled with anguish. Oh, by the way, that they could not this man do that. That was verse 37. I'm sorry about that. But Jesus is filled with anguish up in verse 32. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him and fell down at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus is filled with anguish. Again, this is fascinating. And I think so important for us to put into our picture of this savior that we follow. He loves you by name. In this case, he delayed and he waited. He did not spare the immediate suffering, spare them from the immediate suffering. But then thirdly, he's filled with anguish. That is to say that the delay was not just some cheap stunt. To say that Jesus' delay was not something he could just do. It, it didn't bother him. There was no emotional investment here. No, the grief of Mary and Martha, the grief of Lazarus' friends, brought him great grief, great anguish. This is not... Simply, again, the sort of the, the romantic trickle of a tear. This is Jesus groaning within his spirit. This is Jesus wrenched with pain at the graveside of his friend, the friend who he loved by name, and these two women whom he also loved. Jesus weeps. Do you believe in such a savior? Again, the delay then is not a cheap stunt. I think this is so important for us to understand. I often tell people, <clears throat> I tell my students anyway, when we're arguing for apologetics, and people say, well, I don't believe in God. I tell my students, ask them what God they don't believe in. The God that most people don't believe in, and I grant they don't believe in the in true God either, but the way they generally understand God is the distance, aloof God, the deistic God, the God who sits unbothered above all the problems and ills of this world. But this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God who has come near to us in the midst of our suffering. Yes, he delays. Yes, he allows Pharaoh to resist him. Yes, he allows death to have its moment. And we'll get there in a second about what possible reason he could have for this. But nonetheless, our God, our Savior, our Good Shepherd is the Good Shepherd who comes near and joins his people in their suffering that he might redeem them from it. Ours is not an unbothered God. 
For the one who is weeping here at the grave of Lazarus, make no mistake about it, is God the Son himself, the second person of the Trinity, in our flesh, weeping real human tears in sorrow, knowing full well what he's about to do in a couple minutes, but weeping as he sees the ravages of death, as he sees the full effect of what sin has done to the world he loves and to the people he loves. Now, Jesus' delay is not cheap. It's not unemotional. It's purposeful. But Jesus Christ comes and he weeps at the grave of Lazarus. Brothers and sisters, <coughs> we need to reckon with the fact that the God who delays, the God who knew Pharaoh is going to resist you and I'm going to let him resist you, is not just playing fast and loose with the circumstances of history. For when Jesus delays, it will cost him. Why did God ever allow sin to enter the world anyway? This whole story that we're part of and this story that we're celebrating the climax of today on Easter Sunday, we know that God is sovereign. He could have created a world in which there was no sin. So why? Why the delay? Why allow sin to do this? Now, we may not know all the answers to that. We're not God. But here's what I do know. When he made the decision to allow sin to enter the world, it's a decision that cost him. For in order for him to love sinners, in order for him to redeem sinners, it was going to cost him his only begotten son. The son was going to have to bear upon his own shoulders the weight of the world's guilt. When Jesus delays here, it seems so simple just with a word, Lazarus, come forth. And it is that because Lazarus is being resuscitated from the dead. But the real resurrection, the real defeat of death is not something that can merely be done with a word and with a command. It is something that is going to come through the death of the word of God. And when Jesus allows man to rebel freely and willingly against God, it is something that will cost him. Because in order to pour out his love, he will have to bear the very guilt and death of the world. And we feel all of that come in this anguish of Jesus here at the graveside of Lazarus. The God who loves Lazarus by name. And the God who delayed even allowing Lazarus' death is the God who weeps in the person of his son at the grave of Lazarus. Fourthly, Jesus' question. And this is what the whole text, I think, boils down to. Mary and Martha come to Jesus. They're weeping. They each, in their own way, tell Jesus that had he been here, this wouldn't happen. But then Jesus speaks, and these are the familiar words of the text back in verse 25. Martha said to him, or let me go back to verse 22. Verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that, Jesus. I, I do believe that in the last day in the resurrection, Lazarus is coming out of that grave. But my brother's dead. And I, I thought you could heal him. I thought you could keep it from going there. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? Jesus puts this pointed question to her now. Both the sisters have come and have said, hey, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus says, well, listen to me. He's going to live. I know. I know he's going to live on that last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. If you have me, you will live forever. If you have me, though you die, you will live. If you have me, it'll be as if you will never die. Do you believe this? This is the question I want to pose to you today and also for me to, to reckon with. Do we believe this? This is the question that ultimately we have to ask. If we walk in the light, Jesus, Jesus, it's interesting, back earlier in the text, Jesus is going to head back to Judea. The disciples know that this could very well get him killed. And the disciples are like, I don't think this is a really good idea for you to go. And this is back out in verse 9. Listen to what Jesus says. This is interesting. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is saying here and challenging his disciples to live and to walk in light of what it is they believe. They're saying, you're crazy to head back into harm's way. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, it's daylight. I'm walking in the light. I am walking in trust. I know my father. I know the will of my father, and I'm walking in light of it. Essentially, he's now saying the same thing to Martha and Mary. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Because if we do, then it requires a life of trust. If we really believe this, then it requires a, an, an action, right? That's why we looked at, at 1 Corinthians 15. This beautiful text on the resurrection brings us down to the last verses. Therefore, if in fact you believe that death has lost its victory, if in fact you, have, you believe that the grave has lost its victory over you and death its sting, well, then what do we do? Walk in the light. Lift up your head. Put away your sorrow and your grief. I know we grieve. Of course, we do. Paul says we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Be steadfast. Be immovable. 
Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. You who believe the light, walk in the light. You who believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, walk in the life. There is nothing that can harm you. Death itself, even Lazarus's death, now can be overcome with a word. We know it's going to cost Jesus his life. The, the ultimate resurrection is going to come through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, it's happened. That's what we celebrate today. Praise be to God. What have we to fear in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Therefore, let us walk in the light. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If you believe in him, you will never die. Death will never have victory over you. Do you believe this? I trust you do. Which then brings us to the last point, the glory of Christ. It's interesting that at the end of this, of this wonderful story, Jesus walks to the grave. They warn him. They warn him. He's been in there four days. Jesus has them roll the stone away, and then he calls for Lazarus to come forth. But before he does, he acknowledges to God that he's going to call this out verbally. He's calling upon the Father to do this for him. And he even acknowledges to the Father, Father, I, I know I don't have to go through all this verbally, but I'm doing this for their sakes. I want them to hear me call upon you. I want them to see this visually. I want them to hear it audibly as I call forth for Lazarus to come out of that grave so that they may behold your glory. I don't know why God delays, but I do know this. It's in the delay and it's in the sorrow that the context for the glory of God is most clearly manifested. Jesus waits, Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up and then says, I'm going to do this so that they may see, the disciples, Lazarus's family, may see the glory of God. Why would God allow sin to enter the world? Why would God allow Satan, sin, and death to reign? Why would God allow Pharaoh to resist him? Well, we know in the story with Pharaoh, he does this so that you may know, and not just you, but all the nations of the world may know that there is one true God, that we may know that God alone has victory over death, that we may know that he loves us and loves us to the end, even in such a way that it cost him the death of his only begotten son. It is in this that he chooses to manifest his glory and his love. This is where we see the glory of the good shepherd in that he laid down his life for his sheep, that he might raise them up with him unto everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I ask you again, do you believe this? Do you believe in a savior who loves you by name? Do you believe and trust in a savior who will wait and who will not spare you from every grief, but one who nonetheless enters into your pain that he might minister to you there, weeping tears of anguish over the ravages of sin and death, knowing full well what it will cost him and what he will do to deliver you from it. 
Do you believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life itself? And do you believe in the one whose glory is so magnificently demonstrated in his self-giving love, in the death of the cross for you, and in the power of his resurrection? I trust and pray that you will believe in him. And may your souls be refreshed this morning in the good news of that gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your ways are not our ways. And your thoughts, not our thoughts. But Lord, we see in the cross and in the resurrection, the climax of your glory. And Lord, while you do not feel pleased to answer all our particular questions, you nonetheless have manifested your love and your glory to us in sending your only begotten son to redeem us from our sin and to be raised from the dead that we in him might have victory over death itself. And if victory over death, then Father, what can possibly stand against us? Who is there to condemn us? What is there that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Neither height nor death, nor life, nor death itself. And so we give you thanks today. And Lord, we pray that you would then help us to walk in the light. Father, may this confession that we make as we proclaim and claim to love this one true God and his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the spirit, that, Father, as we profess this, may it be manifested in the way we live our lives. May we be steadfast. May we be immovable. May we be always abounding in the work of the Lord. For we ask it in his name. Amen.